1953, at her coronation, here in Westminster Abbey, Elizabeth II was crowned Queen of England and the Commonwealth. Dressed in royal robes, she was adorned by the crown jewels, including the Star of Africa, the largest cut diamond in the whole world, valued at over £400 million. Now, despite that, the Queen was handed a book and told, we present you with this, the most valuable thing this world affords. More precious than the crown jewels was a plain copy of the Bible, just like ours. On one occasion, the Queen expressed her confidence in the Bible, describing it as a treasure house of truth, full of inspiration and counsel. In a Christmas message, she said, for me, the teachings of Christ provide a framework by which I try to lead my life. Today's session focuses on some high profile leaders in the nation of Israel. As we will see, the success or failure depended on their loyalty to God and his word. Now, most of us will never come close to shouldering the responsibilities of a monarch, but all of us can lead influential lives that lead a great legacy. So, for monarchs and mothers, prime ministers and plumbers, the Bible is more precious than the crown jewels. Welcome to session four, Judges and Kings. Last time we considered Exodus and the Promised Land and we got as far as the book of Joshua. So let's remind ourselves of where Joshua fits in and also of the story of the Bible so far. In the beginning, God made the world good. And though humans turned it bad, God determined to make it good again. So he called Abraham and promised that his family would bless all families. But through Joseph, Israel went down to Egypt and there were enslaved for 400 years. So God sent Moses to bring them out and then Joshua led them in to the promised land. Now with God's help, Israel took possession of the land of Canaan. You may be familiar with the famous story of the conquest of Jericho. Israel marched round the city seven times and then finally, as they blew their trumpets, the walls crumbled. So by the end of the book of Joshua, Israel was settled in the very territory that God had promised to Abraham. And we read that the land had rest from war. But the next part of the story was hardly, and they lived happily ever after. Instead, Israel, meant to be the solution, actually became part of the problem. God's covenant people compromised with the surrounding nations and ended up living like everyone else. Now to understand why this happened, we need to appreciate the threats that Israel faced. Firstly, from Canaanite religions. The surrounding peoples worshipped lots of different gods with a certain hierarchy. El was the chief god, along with a female god, Asherah. But the god of the rains was called Baal, and the Canaanites believed that he controlled the harvest. 
Now, these Canaanite gods were moody and unpredictable, like a gang of teenagers. So you bribed them to get them to do what you wanted. This included cultic rituals, shrine prostitution, and even the horrific practice of child sacrifice. Now, when it didn't rain, Israel was tempted to worship these gods rather than trusting Yahweh, the God of Israel. Now, the other threat came from Philistine armies. These were fierce warriors with chariots who'd come down from Europe. Their most famous fighter was called Goliath, the giant. You may have heard of him. So these Philistines and the surrounding nations posed a continual threat to Israel's national security. Now, to deliver Israel from these threats, God raised up various judges. These were not law court judges with wigs and gavels. These were charismatic leaders who ruled with justice and led military campaigns to defend Israel. Now, there were 14 in all, including some well-known judges like Gideon, Samson and Samuel. There was also a female judge called Deborah around 1100 BC. And Judge Deborah later became an inspiration for women's rights movements in the 19th and 20th centuries. Now, the key to understanding the book of Judges is to think of it as a series of cycles symbolised by this icon on our storyline. Imagine a scratch CD that gets stuck on the same track. Well, here's how the track goes according to Judges chapter 3. Firstly, rebellion. Verse 7, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Then judgment. Verse 8, the Lord sold them into the hands of their enemies. Then a saviour. Verse 9, the Lord raised up a deliverer, one of the judges. And finally, peace. Verse 11, so the land had rest from war. But after a judge restored peace, the next generation wandered away from God and round we go again. It's a sad story of repeat offending that leaves Israel stuck in a downward spiral. And it's a challenge to us. It's easy to get stuck in cycles of bitterness, negativity, self-pity or lust. We pray for forgiveness, we get restored and then round we go again. Maybe you're stuck in a negative cycle right now. Well, the good news is that we have the ultimate judge, Jesus, who can deliver us. The New Testament puts it this way, there is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Our lives do not have to sound like a stuck CD. Through Jesus, we can really change. The book of Judges is probably the most brutal in the Bible. It should really come with a warning, you know, like at the start of a film, contains scenes of a violent nature. But this is not because God sanctioned the violence. Much of it illustrates the mess Israel got into by turning away from God. And it's an important reminder. Not everything in the Bible is biblical. Some stuff recorded was against God's will. Now, remember that, especially when reading narrative sections that just describe what happened. For example, the book of Judges spirals down at the end to a dark scene involving gang rape, 
murder and body parts being posted across Israel. Now, just telling that story should be enough to show that Israel was in a real mess. But you may also be aware of other passages in the Old Testament where God does sanction the use of force. In Joshua, for example, God called Israel to drive out the inhabitants of the land. Now, the idea of God sanctioning the use of force may seem harsh, but a few things are worth remembering. When the Bible refers to, for example, the city of Jericho, we mustn't imagine a city like London with millions of inhabitants. According to some archaeologists, Jericho was a military garrison with just approximately 100 soldiers. So the only women mentioned living in Jericho were prostitutes. And remarkably, God ensured that one of them, called Rahab, was protected, and she later features in the Messiah's family tree. Now, Israel's actions in driving out the Canaanites were also an expression of God's judgment. Judgment against horrendous practices, including child sacrifice. So God was not against their ethnic race so much as their abusive and false religions. And when we take a step back and see the big picture, we realize that God's intention in giving Israel the promised land was that it would be a base from which they would bless all nations. In the Second World War, for example, the Allied forces used aggressive action to liberate Europe. Now, in a similar way, Israel was called to drive out evil in order to bring hope to all nations. And finally, remember that this was the Old Testament. But often what was physical in the Old Testament switches to a spiritual meaning in the New Testament. This is certainly true for warfare. For our fight is not against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realm. Therefore put on the full armour of God, so that you may be able to stand firm. God's kingdom is not of this world and is never established with swords or bullets or guns. Instead, our only weapons today are truth and love. Now, set in the time of the judges, the book of Ruth shines like a diamond in the rough. Ruth was a foreign girl who came to Israel as an asylum seeker, but ended up marrying a Jewish guy called Boaz. So on one level, it's a great story of a guy and a girl getting together God's way. If you're getting started in a relationship, Ruth is packed with practical wisdom that you can glean from. But on another level, this book is all about redemption. The clues are everywhere. The story is set in the town of Bethlehem. Does that ring any bells? And Boaz is referred to as a kinsman redeemer because he rescued his widowed relative Naomi from debt. Now the story of Ruth finishes then with a family tree. Ruth and Boaz have a son, Obed. He was the great-grandfather of King David. More of him in a minute. But David was in turn the great, great, great times of few, grandfather of none other than Jesus Christ, also born in Bethlehem. 
That means that Ruth is in Jesus's family tree. A powerful reminder that God is not sexist or racist. His family includes females and Gentiles. Now, ultimately, this beautiful story points us then to Jesus. He is our kinsman redeemer for all humanity, including widows and asylum seekers like Ruth and Naomi. Now, the final verses of Judges highlight the desperate need for fresh leadership in Israel. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So enter Samuel. He was the last of the judges and he anointed the first of the kings of Israel. 1 and 2 Samuel, therefore, transitions from the time of the judges to the era of the kings. And Samuel himself brings together the three big leadership roles in the Old Testament, prophet, priest and king. Now, last session, we looked at the role of the priests who made sacrifices on behalf of God's people. Next session, we will look at the role of the prophets who spoke God's word to his people. But this session, we focus on the role of the king in Israel. Around 1050 BC, Samuel anointed Israel's first king, Saul. Now, outwardly, Saul was an impressive choice. He was the tallest and most handsome man in Israel. But he also had a dark side. He became quite insecure and angry. His inner character did not match his outer strength. And as a result, he became mentally disturbed and deliberately disobeyed God on several occasions. Saul then illustrates the danger of judging a book by its cover. Muscles and money are never the measure of a real man. So Samuel was told by God to look for Saul's replacement. King David became the most famous of all the kings of Israel. But when God chose him, he was the least likely candidate. He was the youngest and presumably the smallest of eight brothers in the household of Jesse. So outwardly, he was not impressive. But God's X-ray vision examined David's heart and found something far more important. We all face pressure through marketing and social media to look a certain way, to buy the latest, have the biggest or the most expensive. We can spend hours in front of the mirror or at the gym or in the office chasing a certain look, bank balance or career that can become an idol. We can be driven by a constant need to check in and tweet, remain on trend and keep up appearances. But continual comparison leads to low self-esteem and insecurity. Like King Saul, we can live superficial lives and end up feeling lonely on the inside. But God looks at the heart. His vision is not skin deep or superficial. As the Lord said to Samuel concerning David, do not look at his appearance or his height or stature, for the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks at outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. So let's get to the heart of the matter by discussing the call of David in 1 Samuel chapter 16. 
you may have noticed that when Samuel anointed David, he poured oil over him and the Spirit of God rushed upon him. This act came to define the whole idea of Israel's king. He was the anointed one. This was royal oil. And to this day, kings and queens are still anointed with oil as a sign of God's authority. It's often considered the most sacred part of a coronation ceremony conducted behind a veil. Now, crucially, the verb to anoint in Hebrew is masiach, from which we get the word Messiah. The Jews lived in hope that the ultimate Messiah king would come from the line of David. Then centuries later, Jesus declared of himself, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now to Jewish ears, this was a claim to be God's Messiah King. And that's why he's called Jesus Christ. Christ is the Greek equivalent of the Hebrew word Messiah. They both mean anointed one. So Christ is not Jesus' surname. It's equivalent to saying Jesus is king. In fact, he's the king of kings. The former Queen of England, Queen Victoria, put it this way. I wish to be alive when Jesus Christ returns, that I might be the first monarch to take off my crown and lay it at his feet. She was a queen, but she knew the king of kings. Now, with all that in mind, we can see that the life of David foreshadowed the coming Messiah. For example, after being anointed by Samuel, David took on the nine-foot giant Goliath. He defeated him, cut off his head, and allowed the rest of Israel to triumph over their enemies. And in the same way, as we'll see, Jesus stepped into our battle with the giants of sin and sickness, evil and death, and he won the decisive victory for us. What David did for Israel, Jesus has done for the whole world. But back to the story. Even though Samuel had anointed David, officially Saul was still the king. And David's victories over Goliath stirred up Saul's insecurities. He attacked David and hounded him out into the wilderness. So David had to learn to trust God in really tough places. But eventually Saul died and David's royal calling began to unfold. Initially, he was made king of his tribe, Judah, from around 1000 BC. But soon the other tribes recognized David's authority and he united the 12 tribes into one nation for the first time. David went on to defeat Israel's enemies, establish secure borders, and bring about a new era of stability. He also established a new capital city to unite the tribes. Jerusalem was a small hill fort that was easy to defend because of its elevation. David captured it and turned it into a great city. He pitched the tabernacle there and brought the Ark of the Covenant up with some pretty wild celebrations as we've seen in our daily readings. Now Jerusalem quickly became known then as the city of David, but it's also referred to as Zion or Mount Zion in the Bible. 
Now, up to this point, David was a man after God's own heart, a great glimpse of the coming Messiah. But his life was a game of two halves. He scored a hat-trick in the first half and then a terrible own goal in the second. He committed adultery with a beautiful woman called Bathsheba. Then, realising she was pregnant, David had her husband killed to cover up the crime. And though David did repent, the rest of his life suffered the consequences, including the loss of a child, assassination attempts, and a mutiny led by his own son. It's a stark reminder that a night of pleasure can lead to years of pain. David wrote many beautiful songs of worship called Psalms, but there's none more poignant than Psalm 51. Imagine David praying it with tears of repentance. And if you've screwed up and feel deep regret, this can become your prayer too. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. David's reign is recorded in 1 and 2 Samuel, 1 and 2 Kings, and 1 and 2 Chronicles. These are historical books that overlap in different places, giving us perspectives on the same events. They're probably called 1 and 2 because they were just too long to fit onto one scroll, but they're really one continuous work. Now, as we consider King David's successor, we're again reminded that God is in the business of recycling. Solomon was born as one of the children from David and Bathsheba's affair. Now, isn't that encouraging? God can redeem the mess in our lives and make something new out of it too. King Solomon was known for several reasons, all beginning with W. Wisdom and wealth and worship. We still speak of the wisdom of Solomon today. As we saw in one of our daily readings, Solomon had a dream one night in which God said, make a wish. Now, Solomon didn't ask for a million pounds, but for wisdom. So God gave Solomon exceptional wisdom. But he also became a multi-millionaire. Solomon's reign was an era of prosperity. In fact, we're told that there was so much gold that silver was not considered of any value. It was just metal. These were Israel's glory days. Now, with all that money, Solomon had some grand designs. He built a huge palace for himself and then a temple for God. Remember, until this time, God lived in a tent. David had pitched it in Jerusalem, and later God gave David some plans for a more permanent residence, a temple. But it was Solomon that got the planning permission to actually build it. Now, Solomon's temple was not just a local church. It was a vast campus containing a national bank, places for teaching, law courts and spaces for worship and prayer. In Britain, it would have been the equivalent of the Houses of Parliament, the Bank of England and St. Paul's Cathedral all in one. 
But the epicentre of it all was the holy place with heavily restricted access. The outer precinct was the furthest non-Jews could go. Then there were outer and inner courts. Only Jewish males were allowed this far. Then the holy place where priests served. And finally, the inner sanctuary or most holy place. This was God's private room. Only the high priest went in there and only once a year. So ultimately, the temple was not about the building, but the presence. Temple was where the God of heaven lived on earth. It was his royal residence. Now fast forward to the New Testament and we find a major relocation of the temple from a building in Jerusalem to the people of God, the church. No longer physical bricks, God's temple is now made up of living stones, people like you and me. So the Apostle Paul writes to a small church in Greece. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit lives in you? Now to a Jew familiar with that awesome building in Jerusalem, this was a stunning claim. The God who filled Solomon's temple with his glory now filled these little communities of Christians with that same glory. This was a staggering development. And it came with two other radical changes. Firstly, the new temple is open planned. Remember all those walls and restrictions in Solomon's temple based on ethnicity and gender? Well, they've gone. Jesus has broken them down. His church is now open planned. Here's how the New Testament puts it. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, male nor female. All of you are one in Christ. The new temple is not only open planned, it also has open access. When Jesus died on the cross, the wall of curtain that blocked the way into God's presence was torn in two from top to bottom. Now the Holy of Holies has been opened up through Jesus. We get unlimited access to God's presence. Now, if you visit a royal residence like Buckingham Palace, you may be able to stand and peer through the gates, but there's no access. Now, that would have been the experience of going to the temple in the Old Testament. You could peer in, but there was no access to the royal residence of the King of Kings. So imagine the shock if you were told that His Majesty wanted to come to your house. A Christian friend of ours lived in Scotland near Balmoral Castle, the Queen's favourite place to holiday. And one year, Sylvia and her husband received an invitation to the annual Balmoral Ball. There, they met the Queen and the royal family, and as it turned out, they got on rather well. And soon, Sylvia received the message that the royal family would like to come to their house for tea. Can you imagine how you would react? Spring cleaning, cooking, polishing. Finally, Sylvia went outside to pick some flowers for the table and she was shaking like a leaf. 
And then she felt God whisper to her, I'm the king of kings and I'm with you every day. It's only the queen. (laughs) Now that thought dispelled fear and they had a marvellous meal with the royal family. The queen may never visit your home, but if you're a Christian, the king of kings lives with you every day. We are a holy temple hosting his royal highness on a daily basis. Now, Solomon's wisdom also inspired a whole collection of books in the Bible known as wisdom literature. For example, Psalms. This was Israel's songbook. It covers every season of life. Why not read one of these a day? There are 150 in total and most only take a couple of minutes. Then there's Proverbs. This contains short, snappy sayings like Twitter feeds of practical wisdom for everyday life. Then, of course, Ecclesiastes. This book, this one reflects on how empty and meaningless life can be without God. It's like the celebrity who's got everything but sings along with you too. I still haven't found what I'm looking for. Then there's the Song of Solomon. This one should come with a warning, contains content of a sexual nature. It celebrates sex as a gift from God within the covenant of marriage. But it also captures the greater love of God for his people. And then finally, there's Job. Have you noticed that in this fallen world, life isn't always fair? A righteous man, Job, suffers despite no wrongdoing on his part. So this one teaches us to trust God with our questions about suffering and to hang on to hope through the tough times. On my phone, I regularly engage with all sorts of communication styles, emails and web pages, blogs and social media feeds, And of course, the way I read the latest news update is very different to how I respond to a text message from my wife. Now, think of the Bible this way. It contains all sorts of different communication styles, from stories and poetry to parables and songs. And each style needs to be handled a bit differently. Now, we don't need to be experts, but a little coaching can really help. So let's consider how to read wisdom literature, and then in later sessions, we'll look at some other styles of writing in the Bible too. Now, wisdom in the Bible is about making good choices. It's really practical stuff about work and health, parenting and friendships and money. So it helps to distinguish wisdom and knowledge. One is about information, the other discernment. It's been said that knowledge is knowing, a tomato is a fruit, but wisdom is not putting it in the fruit salad. You can have a really high IQ and still make foolish life choices. So wisdom is having the skill to live life well. Now, Proverbs was written as wisdom from a male perspective. It's a father teaching his son. So Proverbs 21.19 says, Better to live on the roof than in a house with a nagging wife. 
Now that may have come from painful experience, but it was intended as wisdom for a single person. In other words, think long and hard about who to marry. You'll live with the consequences. And finally, it's worth remembering that Proverbs is part of a wider set of wisdom literature. It gives general principles, but they're not the same as promises. For example, Proverbs 16 verse 3 says, Commit your ways to the Lord and your plans will succeed. Now, we can't take that as a blank check covering whatever we want to do. It doesn't endorse Saul's attempted murder of David or David's adultery with Bathsheba or Solomon's 700 wives and 300 concubines. Proverbs gives pithy principles, but they need to be interpreted in the light of wisdom in the whole Bible. Wisdom in the Bible is so precious, more than the crown jewels. It helps us avoid pitfalls and brings lasting success. When I set off to climb a mountain, I always pack one of these, no matter how good the weather is at the start. It's a compass and it always points true north. So if the clouds come down and I feel disorientated, I can rely on its guidance. Many a time, this little device has provided a safe route off a dangerous mountain. Now, in a confusing world, the Bible gives wisdom and guidance that we can rely on. And if we trust him, God will lead us safely home. This session on Judges and Kings has covered some of Israel's most famous rulers. Judges like Samson, Deborah and Samuel and kings like Saul, David and Solomon. Their lives were defined by their response to God and his word. When they trusted God's guidance, they lived with wisdom. But where their hearts wandered off, they made foolish choices that ended in pain. Now it's our turn as we reflect on Proverbs 3, 5 and how to fully rely on God. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make straight your path. Thank you.